0: I'm sure most, if not all of us, are very familiar with the typical nativity scene. Picture this with me, if you would. The manger of hay. So, sort of, mangerly. And you have, of course, the baby Jesus. And he's cute and cuddly, and there he is. Looking over that manger is... Mary adoring her son, and Joseph. On the fringes, there is the the shepherds, and they're doing their thing there. And this nativity scene is a scene that is celebrated and reenacted by the millions. I mean, there are these scenes everywhere, and statuary on front lawns, everywhere here and across the world and this very calm pastoral quiet scene has produced world-famous lyrics describing it like this silent night holy night all is calm all is bright round yon virgin mother and child holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. You probably know those lyrics, don't you? you probably sung that many, many times. And they reinforce this perspective on Jesus' birth as being sweet and cuddly and sort of simple and common. And of course, in our culture, The merchandising of Christmas depends very much on this sort of perspective on Christmas as being very sentimental and a time of families gathering and there being, uh, you know, the the chestnuts roasting on the open fire and it is, after all, the most wonderful time of the year, etc., etc. Now, I'm not here to ruin your sentimental Christmas. I'm going to let the Bible do it all by itself, okay? (laughs) And no place better to annihilate the sentimental Christmas than Revelation chapter 12, which is my text today and next week. Revelation 12. I'll bet... Most everybody here has never heard a Christmas message from Revelation 12. I'm going to almost assume that. I also am going to guarantee that not one family in our church has ever, before the kids open the presents on Sunday mo- or on Christmas morning, they have never turned to Revelation 12 and read this. And the reason that we don't do that is that if we did, the kids would be too terrified to open a single present. Now as you turn to Revelation, it is always hard to just parachute into one passage in the middle of one book of the Bible and to just exposit it because they always have flow. There's things before that create context and so we typically kind of work our way through books of the Bible. That's one reason it's so helpful. Uh, but today we're parachuting in to Revelation 12 which is also a chapter in the hardest book of the Bible to interpret, so we have some uh, challenges here this morning, uh, but I'm gonna do the best that I can. And one of the challenges of Revelation is that the book of Revelation is written in a genre of literature, a style kind of literature, known as apocalyptic. And if you've ever read Revelation, you've probably had your head spinning trying to figure out, what is this saying? It's written in what is known as apocalyptic literature. Uh, which is a, a, a kind of literature that uses symbols, very vivid symbols, uh, to communicate whatever the author is trying to communicate. And if you read through Revelation, I mean, some of these are, they, they seem bizarre to us. Now, before we look our noses down on the people that wrote this, John and people in the first century, which, by the way, apocalyptic literature was fairly popular in the first century, not so much today, before we look our noses down on them, remember that we live in a day where the most popular movies of our day have to do with humans with superhuman abilities and aliens from other worlds. So what might somebody 500 years from now think about us watching a rerun of Spider-Man or The Incredible Hulk? Those people were nut jobs back then. I mean, look at the things that they, this is what they did. This is what they were into. And so we similarly have that challenge looking back 2,000 years to a style of literature that seems very different to us, but we can get it, and the Holy Spirit wants us to get it. One, uh, one study Bible, literary study Bible done by the Rikens, uh, describes this kind of literature this way. The most important thing to know about the literary form of the book of Revelation is that it uses a technique of symbolism from start to finish. Instead of portraying characters and events directly, much of the time the author portrays them indirectly by means of symbols. So this symbolic reality, it it appeals to our, our minds, but it also appeals to our imaginations. And this is... Part of the challenge is that as you read this, it engages the imagination, which is part of the power of it, but it's the struggle of interpreting it. A gospel, or you know, Paul, one of Paul's letters, is much more objective, but imagination lends itself to lots of different kinds of interpretation, and that's why Revelation has spawned all different manner of, of interpretations. The passage we have in front of us today uses symbols, but I don't think any of them get in the way of the main point. And so let's get into now the passage that nobody here has ever read on Christmas morning. You ready? John writes And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. "...behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron." But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. May God bless the reading of his word together today. I don't even need to explain this. We all get it. Let's go home. (laughs) Any families read this passage Christmas morning? I didn't think so, okay? For obvious reasons, wow, what a spectacular scene this is. And one of the important things to realize is that this symbolic realism is describing spiritual realities that lie behind historical events. So a historian will write a story, a a, a narrative. In in this year, you know, George Washington did this, or John Adams did that, or Jefferson, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. That's how we, in our modern chronological history, write histories. John is writing a history, both a past and a future, but he is using these the symbolic realism to tell the story to tell the story, that li- the the symbol the spiritual realities that lie behind the historical events. So let's get into these characters and see if we can figure out who is he talking about here. So let's begin with the woman and notice that it says in verse one, a great sign appeared in heaven. Now what sign would this be? In the Greek it's mega sign, like a, like a mega billboard, but it's not a billboard, it's a woman. Okay. A great sign in heaven, there is a woman. And she's described as being clothed with the sun. Now ladies, I don't know where you shop. But I'm going to guess nobody here is clothed with the sun. This is describing the, the glory, the radiance of her being. Under her feet is the moon. Okay. It takes the moon to hold her up. This is a majestic woman. This is a really, really significant, important, grand woman. And she is wearing a crown, it says, of 12 stars. And when you read through Revelation, numbers are really, really important because there's so much that it's hard to know what it's talking about. The numbers are actually clues. So let's think about this a second. This woman, who by the way is about to birth the Messiah, spoiler, but this woman who's about to birth The Messiah is described as having 12 somethings. So if you think in your mind, what do I know? What entity do I know that births the Messiah and has 12 somethings about it? And of course, we think of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. And that is who this woman is. Now, it's going to get a little more challenging because after. The work of Jesus here, the presence of Jesus. she is described as the church. So she goes from being Israel at the first part of the chapter to being church, the church, later in the chapter, and that's why it's best just to see this woman as the, the people of God, the covenantal community, the people of God. Here she is Israel. She is in agony. She is about to give birth. And she's crying out in pain. So this is like, this is a birthing room scene. This is, and you women and dads that maybe were there, you know this scene, okay? This ain't a pretty scene. Now, in the modern day, women seem to take pictures right after giving birth and posting them on Facebook. Uh, many women, women don't do that for reasons that this is not their finest moment, Right? This has been an agonizing, terrifying, difficult sort of thing. And that's the scene here. A woman writhing in pain, crying out in pain. And then in verse 3, we have the next character in the story. And this one's a frightening one. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. That's hard to visualize, isn't it? A great red dragon. Now this one, John leaves no question who it is. He says in verse nine, he, he gives the identity. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So who's the dragon? Satan himself. And what a, I mean, it'd be hard to think of a better description of Satan than a great red dragon. And you see the symbols uh, associated with the dragon. He's a red dragon. Okay, This this is an aggressive dragon. This is a bloodthirsty dragon. This isn't the blue Smurf dragon. This is the one that is like bent on destruction. He has seven heads, and seven diadems. A diadem is a crown. So this is a seven-headed dragon. And the crown speaks to its uh, glory, its authority. A horn in, Bibl- in, the, in biblical times represented power. He has ten of them. So he has diadems and heads and horns. And all of it is describing a great, powerful dragon dragon. To give you a sense of scale, John notes that with a sweep of his tail, a third of all the stars of the heavens fall to earth. That's a big dragon. That's a very big dragon. It makes me think of the, the scene from The Hobbit where the dwarves have finally made their way to the, to the lonely mountain. They're about, to, they're about to go in when all of a sudden there's this loud noise and the, the earth shakes under their feet and one of the dwarves cries out and he says, what was that? Was that an earthquake? And the aged and wise dwarf Balin says, that, my lad, was a dragon. Apparently you didn't see the movie. Uh, <laughs> but if you had happened to have seen The Hobbit movie, that picture of, of, of uh, Shmog was the best dragon that I have ever seen. Scene. i mean the thing was massive and scary and with this voice and the fire and all of that and yet schmog is no match for the dragon that we have before us here today this is the ancient enemy of almighty god this is the prince of darkness he is described as the god little g of this world this is satan And look where he is and what he intends to do. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Visualize that with me. The dragon right there in the birthing room, ready to pounce on the child the moment it appears in order to kill it. That's a visual, isn't it? This is a very effective visual that John is painting for us, which leads then to the question, well, then who must this child be? If If Satan is there and his whole focus is on killing this child, who's the child? Notice what it says. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And remember, as I say that, he is not writing a history. He is using symbols to tell Redemptive history. And what we have here is, this is John's Christmas. This is John's Christmas story here. She gave birth to a male child. Okay, so he is male. Notice his destiny. Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And a rod of iron represents justice and like absolute rule. So who could this be? Who does this sound like? A male child destined to rule all the nations of the world. This, of course, is an easy one as well. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus in the story. Is the male child about to be birthed by Israel? And that sort of writhing and the agony described of the woman who is about to give birth describes the longings of the people of Israel as they long for the Messiah to come, they long for the fulfillment of the promises of God. They long for all that God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Moses, and all the rest. They long for that moment to come and to happen like a pregnant woman in agony crying out in birth. And yet, the scene is a tragic one. There is in the birthing room an assassin. Right there in that precious moment when life begins, awaits an assassin who wants to kill the child. Now I have never seen in my whole life a nativity scene on anybody's front yard or any church that shows the baby Jesus in the manger and Mary and Joseph looking over and the shepherds there and the the few animals and all of that with a giant red dragon over top of it. And I'll know that you are listening today if on the front yard of your house I see one of these. (laughs) Because that's the picture that John is painting. There is a dragon, a massive dragon, about to swallow the child. Why? Why does Satan care about this? And now we have the symbolic historical realism. What John is portraying here is a story that goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to the story of God and Satan, of good and evil. It goes back to Satan's heart in rebellion against God, longing, desiring to be God himself. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you want to know where this really starts in in the story of Scripture, it starts in Genesis 3. If you know the story, Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and they both sin, and God comes, and we call it the curse. He condemns Adam and Eve to death, but then he looks to Satan, and he's got something that he says to Satan. This is Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What he is he talking about? Satan hears that curse and realizes that there is coming one from the offspring of Eve who is going to crush his head. And from that moment on, Satan is bent on thwarting the plan of God, which is to destroy Satan. And he knows there's a child coming. And he hears the prophecies that God gives to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the rest throughout the Old Testament. Satan knows the Bible better than anybody else. He knows the plan. He knows who it was that was coming. He knew Jesus pre-incarnate. And so we see, therefore, throughout history, Satan's efforts to thwart the fulfillment of the promise of God, by devouring the child. Now, how did Satan do that? Well, there's more that could be said on this, but just to give you some idea of how Satan has done this and to begin to think about spiritual realities lying behind historical events, why don't we just begin with the Jews and the historic, undeniable, human hatred, generally speaking, down through history, Of the Jews and the ongoing attempts of genocide against them. We start with, uh, let's go to Egypt. There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and what happened in Egypt? They hated the Jews, then they made them their slaves. We have the story of their destruction by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and yet a remnant remained. You probably know the story from the book of Esther, where there was a genocide that was attempted against the Jews. There was a very detailed plot to kill the Jews. And how God, through this woman Esther, for such a time as this, thwarted the thwarting of Satan. And there remained a remnant of Jews. It's not just ancient history, either. We like look in the Bible and go, oh, that was so long ago. You know, We're so modern now, so many things have changed, really? Is it a coincidence that the man considered the most evil man in the 20th century, Hitler, hated the Jews? Think of all the people groups in the world that you could sort of randomly decide that you're going to hate. And yet, who did Hitler hate? And who did Hitler murder by the millions? What was the Holocaust actually all about? And who was behind all of that? Was it just Hitler? I'm going to make a statement right now. I do not intend this to be a political statement at all. But this week, this week, the President of the United States decides to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And what is the result of that around the world? Protests, riots. I wonder if we would have changed the... Embassy in Zimbabwe from this city. We're going to move it from this city over to to this city. Or New Zealand. The New Zealand embassy. We're going to move the New Zealand embassy from here to there. Would anybody have noticed and would anybody have cared? Probably not. And yet this one people group, the same people group again and again and again and again and again. What lies behind all of that? Is it a coincidence or... Might that, my lad, be a dragon. Let's talk about Jesus, the hatred of Jesus, and the murder of Jesus. Just from the story, these are things that we know from Scripture describing the events of Jesus' life from the beginning. I mean, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, okay? Safe to say, we know that. He's born in Bethlehem. Sometime after that, Matthew tells us that these wise men, these magi from the east show up and they go to Jerusalem because where else would the king of the Jews be then in the capital city of Jerusalem, ironically, Uh, and they say, where's he born king of the Jews?" The whole city goes into an uproar. A, these guys are like dressed really strange and they're from a very far away place. And yet the message that they have is that there is a king of the Jews. Word gets to Herod, who was the sort of surrogate king at that time, that there is somebody maybe been born. These guys have come. They saw some sign. They knew some prophecy. They put two and two together. And Herod says, hey, bring them in. And so they come in and Herod says to them, hey, Tell me, when did you um, see this star that you're talking about? And they said, oh, maybe like two years ago, roughly. Oh, okay. Um, hey, scholars, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? They said, everybody knows it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem is right over there. So why don't you guys just go on down there, and let's see if you can find who you're, you're looking for. And if you do, why don't you come back and tell me so that I can come and worship him? Treachery. So the wise men go down there, and they find Jesus, just as they, as you know in the story, and they have frank gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They have their worship moment, and God appears to them in a dream and says, don't go back to Herod, go back a different route, and that's exactly what they did. And then Jesus, God appears to Joseph and says, you need to get out of there as fast as you can, and we have the flight to Egypt, right? Why? Because Herod finds out that the wise men double-crossed him. And he says, I'm going to take care of this anyway. And he sends his assassins into the whole region of Bethlehem, and they murdered every child two years and under. What was behind that? Really? Who was behind that? Who was trying to thwart something there? Years later, Jesus hasn't eaten anything for 40 days. He is in the wilderness He's in his weakest moment. This is his most, like humanly speaking, his most vulnerable moment. Who shows up to him in that moment? Is it Michael the archangel? No, it's Satan, who sees an opportunity now to devour the child and tempts Jesus, as you probably know, three times. Why? Because if Jesus could sin, it would thwart the whole plan of God. A little while later, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter comes to him and says, pulls him aside and says, hey, don't be talking like this, man. This isn't, the, this isn't what God would want for you to do. And what does Jesus say to him? He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me who? Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Jesus sees through the words and the activities of Peter to who really stood behind what was going on. Get behind me, Satan. Let's talk about Judas. As you know in the story, Judas, one of his 12 disciples, so trusted that they put him in charge of the money. This is Judas Iscariot. Nobody thought anything about him. He was the same as Andrew and Peter and all the rest. Highly trusted, highly valued. And yet something happened to Judas that led him to betray the Son of God. What was it? Luke tells us this. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was of the number of the 12. Did Judas betray Jesus? Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus. But was somebody else in on that deal? A certain dragon ready to devour the child. The ultimate moment of course For Satan was the cross. There Jesus hanging on the cross. Satan probably in his finiteness, he's not infinite, in his finiteness is seeing Jesus gasping for air and struggling to live and he can't hardly believe it after all of these millennia trying desperately to devour the child, to thwart the plan of God. Here now is my moment and imagine Satan in the moment when Jesus cries out, it is finished. The glee and the joy and the gladness, like, yes, I finally did it. I have devoured the child. I have thwarted the plan of God. Hey, God, you said, you said that th- this child was gonna come and he was gonna crush my head, but it looks to me like I crushed his head. Which brings us back to Revelation. The scene is that just as the child is born and the dragon is about to eat the child, look at verse 5, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What is that describing? This is Acts 1 verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So John, telling his story in Revelation 12, gives Christmas the birth of the male child and ascension as Jesus goes back to the presence of God the Father. Why he doesn't have his life in ministry and cross and all of that, I don't know. But he doesn't. But here's what I do know, and this is the point that he is making, that behind what we see in history, And behind the dramas on the international and the national scale, and behind the dramas on the local and in this church and in your families and in your relationships and your children, behind all of that drama, there is what is seen and there is what is unseen. And on the level of the unseen, this is all about an ancient, massive, cosmic conflict between almighty God and his purposes and his plans, which are good and beautiful and redemptive, and the plans of the evil one, and the plans of the enemy of God. His name is Satan, he is the red dragon. And Satan knows well how this goes because he himself followed this path. He was at one time good with God. God made him the pinnacle of his creation, beautiful, powerful, was given a name that basically means light. He was like himself, like the sun. He was just brilliantly, gloriously wonderful, a servant of God, until at one point in his story, he aspired to be God. He wanted the Trinity moved to four people. And he wanted to be in there amongst it. He wanted a place at the the divine table. And that pride and that self-love brought curse upon him. And God cast him out of heaven and cast him and the other angels now called demons with him into this world. And this Satan, so powerful, so beautiful, now twisted and corrupted. As great as his glory and his beauty was, now it is that greatly evil and hatred and treachery. So how would you describe somebody like that? How about a massive red dragon whose tail sweeps the stars out of the sky, whose head has diadems, and who's in the birthing room ready to devour the child? It's a powerful picture of the story of history. And that is why we have to see beyond the sentimental Christmas and the chestnuts roasting on the open fire and the most wonderful time of the year to realize that from God's perspective, Christmas was not cozy and cuddly and snuggly. That from God's perspective, this is war. And Jesus coming into this world was an act of defiant, War by Almighty God to redeem a lost humanity and to conquer his ancient enemy. And this reminds us, I think, of the stakes that are all around us and who our real enemy is. I just think, we, and I do this myself, you get into the day to day. And you just sort of see what is seen and you think this is what is real and what life is all about and what is unseen, the spiritual realities and the conflict and the war and the battle and the real stakes of what this is all about are largely lost on us. And I think even sort of the sentimental Christmas, sort of all gathering around and having a nice cuddly time as a family is another ploy of Satan to mask what it really is about Listen to the Apostle Paul who urges us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. Now friends, Christmas is wonderful and that baby in the manger is wonderful and we are right to sing joy to the world, the Lord has come and uh, oh come all ye faithful and even silent night, okay? I like silent night. It's fine. We're, We're gonna sing it here at Bethel Church probably Christmas Eve. But the sentimental Christmas can blind us to what this really is. Jesus' birth was God's ancient Purpose fulfilled to crush the head of the red dragon. And this dragon is alive and well to this day. Might he be here right here amongst us right now? I have to believe that something's going on in this conflict right now in this room right now. Now you can't see it necessarily. But if our hearts and the thoughts of our hearts and the struggles internally that we're feeling right now as God's word is being opened and I'm doing my best to explain it and proclaim it and the gospel is in here and the gathered faith community is here. Is there any spiritual conflict going on in this room? Absolutely. And who stands behind it? An ancient red dragon who wants to devour the child and to thwart the purposes and the plans of God. He hates God. And he hates us. He hates the gospel. And he hates the church. He hates God's good work in every Christian. He hates everything that is beautiful and good in this world. He hates it. He is a destroyer and he continues to seek to destroy God's purpose in redeeming a lost humanity through the gospel and through the church. So we may do well to go home and to add a big red dragon over the nativity and maybe we should if it would remind us of the deeper and more important truth, that there is a dragon and he's in our homes and he's in our bedrooms and he's in our family rooms. He is in our small groups, he's in our church, he is in our families, he is in our lives. And in spite of Christmas, he continues to seek to devour the child and the work of the child In this world and so we look at this and we say well what should we do which brings us back to the woman in Revelation 12 something incredible happens to her and to find out what you have to come back next week (laughs) and that's part of the story of the woman the dragon and the Deliverer. Praise God there is a Deliverer, and we celebrate him this Christmas.